things that uh, sometimes we know, but when um, waves crash down on us in life and trials and difficulties come, these things are um, things that often we forget. They go away, or maybe they sink deep into the back of our minds. And so this is good to bring forward, especially as we are looking toward a new year. And who knows what could happen this new year. Could be wonderful things, could be hard times, could be both. And so this is a good reminder for what um, is true about our Lord and Savior. And so, as we look at this um, in Genesis, um, I want to read to you some, some lyrics first. Um, this is a wonderful song that's called Blessings by Laura Story. And I want you to hear, I'm going to read to you the lyrics, but I want you to hear God's goodness and his control in her lyrics. Laura sings, We pray for blessings. We pray for peace. Comfort for family. Protection while we sleep. We pray for healing. For prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. All the while, you hear each spoken need. Yet love is way too much to give us lesser things. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know that you are near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? We pray for wisdom, your voice to hear. We cry in anger when we cannot feel you near. We doubt your goodness. We doubt your love. As if every promise from your word is not enough. All the while, you hear each desperate plea and long that we'd have faith to believe. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know? That you are near. What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. But before we dive in further, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, you are good. Lord, you are in control of all the things of our lives, sifting all the events, good and bad, the heartbreaking, the celebrations. And Lord, we give all of them to you. We were reminded that we have a new year upon us. And we don't know what you have in store for us. We are but pieces of your grand puzzle. And so, Lord, we ask, use us, place us where you will. And we ask that you would remind us time and time again that you are with us every step of the way. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you that we get to worship you, to learn more about you this morning. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Well, we will be diving into the story of Joseph um, as we look at Genesis 40, the end of it, and then Genesis beginning of 41. Um, but before we dive into the journey and story of Joseph, I want to define for you God's sovereignty, and then I want to also point us in the direction of the way we're going to need to read Genesis 41, because we're going to need our wide-angle lens to see what our author Moses wants us to see in this passage. But first, let's define God's sovereignty, since we're going to be talking about it so much. A wonderful 
a reformed theologian, a guy named A.W. Pink, he defines God's sovereignty as this. He says it's the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the godhood of God. Pink says that to say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the most high doing according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, so that no one can stay his hand or say unto him, What are you doing, Lord? He says to say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is the Almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and in earth, so that no one can defeat his will who can thwart his plans or even resist him. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the governor among the nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires. He is determining the courses of dynasties as they please him best and further his will. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he's the king of kings, he's the lord of lords. He is the one who is in total control. Such is the God of our Bible and who we worship today. In other words, God's sovereignty equals his total 100% control over everything in the universe, every single thing. And to use a, the illustration to describe this utter and complete control, I like to use the illustration of a building because God's the architect, he's the construction crew, and he's the occupant of the building using it for his purposes. He's planning and, and drawing out the specs of the building, right? He's actually building it and forming it so that when he occupies it and he uses it, he can use it for whatever purposes he chooses. Total control. And that's the God who we have and who we worship. And as for the perspective, and, and we're going to read Genesis, we're going to see um, Moses as this author and narrator. He's showing us the big picture of what God is doing in the life of Joseph. Oftentimes, when you and I are living, we only see the little picture, the here and now. Moses is stepping back and he's saying, this is what's going on in the life of Joseph. See the grand picture, the beauty of what God is doing in and through some of the trials and difficulties of his life. And Moses, in our passage, he, throws us, uh, he shows us this really in three ways. He's going to show us that Joseph is forgotten, and we're going to see God's sovereignty. We're going to see Joseph remembered, and then we're going to see God's sovereignty. And we're going to see, third, Joseph exalted, and then we're going to see God's sovereignty. And so he keeps coming back and forth showing us that he is good and he is with Joseph. And that is good news for us because he's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And so that's good news. So let's dive in. Let's look at the first point. Joseph forgotten and God's sovereignty. And we're going to see this in Genesis 40 verses 23 through 41 verse 8. So if you have your Bibles, please open those or follow along. Genesis 40, 23 through 41 verse 8 it says the chief cupbearer did not remember joseph but forgot him after two whole years pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the nile and behold there came up out of the nile seven cows attractive and plump they fed in the reed grass and behold seven other cows ugly and thin came up out of the nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the nile and the ugly, thin cows, they ate up the seven attractive plump cows. 
and then Pharaoh awoke. He fell asleep again and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears, they swallowed up the seven plump, full ears of grain. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of their wise men. Pharaoh told these wise men his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. This is the word of God. What we have here is a forgotten man of Joseph, and we have two wild and crazy dreams that Pharaoh has. I mean, these are not normal dreams of cannibalism, of grain and cows. These are, these are obviously very unique. But the fact that they're coming in a pair is also unique. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of these um, dreams and the purposes and why God's using these dreams in amazing ways with Pharaoh. And we're going to see God's sovereignty play into this. But we are fast forwarding in the story of Joseph. So where is Joseph now? In Genesis 40 and 41, he is in prison. Well, and it's because he's done the right thing of basically warding off a woman who wants to have an affair with him. He is now, he's a, a slave working for Potiphar and his wife, who is uh, almost like a um, the chief of police or really overseeing the guards for Pharaoh. He's a wealthy guy with a lot of power. And Joseph is one of his servants. And his wife is very interested in Joseph. But Joseph wards off her advances. And because of him warding off her advances, she must... Um, feel betrayed. She must feel bad. She feels rejected. And so what does she do? She throws Joseph under the bus. She has his coat. She says, look, my husband, look what he has done. He has tried to make advances upon me. And I said, no, and we need to do something about this. And so Potiphar throws him into prison. And Joseph, all he did was the right thing. And so it looks like this is bad news, but we're going to see God at work. And so Joseph is in prison, and two years have elapsed since he was last thought of or even heard of by Pharaoh's cupbearer who was in prison with Joseph. And he's an important man who we're going to be talking about. We don't know exactly how long Joseph's been in prison. We know it's at least two years. But what we do know is from the time Joseph was sold into slavery right by his brothers to the time now where he's in prison and he's about to have an opportune moment, about 13 years have gone by. 13 years of trials and difficulties. That's a hard thing. To go from being a servant and doing the right thing and then being thrown into prison, you might be asking, where is God in this? Well, we're going to see. Joseph is roughly about 30 years old now. So if he spent roughly 13 years plus in slavery and prison, it seems like his youth has been wasted away. He goes in, souls a slave when he's around the age of 17, and now coming, he's the age of 30, and he's in prison. All for what? Being who God created him to be, the favorite son of Jacob, right? To be an ethical man, refusing to sleep with another man's wife? Imagine if you were 
were thrown into prison or, or sold into slavery for simply doing what God told you to do, for being ethical, for being a, a good person who loves his commands and obeys him. To be treated this way, how would you feel towards God if that was your life for 13 plus years? I don't know about you, but I would probably feel a little bit bitter and a little angry, asking, Lord, where are you in all of this? It's not like this just one happened event and it's one off bad and then everything goes back to normal. Consecutive difficulties, trials, time after time. Lord, where are you? Humanly speaking, I think trusting God after this would be incredibly hard. I think that would be very human of us, right? But God is in complete control and he's using these things in ways that we don't always know and always understand. But he's working behind the scenes. And so we see this because Joseph is forgotten by the cupbearer. But we're going to see in time, Joseph is not forgotten by God because God is at work. But a good question really to ask, though, is, is what did the cupbearer, what did, what did um, a Joseph do for this guy? Why does he owe him something? Because the text says that he was forgotten for two years. So what has he done? Well, Joseph, when he was in prison with the cupbearer, he interpreted the cupbearer's dreams. He had a wild dream, and Joseph interpreted that dream. And he also interpreted the dream of Pharaoh's baker. And what happened is, is these interpretations, they came true. The Pharaoh's cupbearer was restored to his office, and the baker was eventually hanged. And so we have Joseph giving this cupbearer hope, encouragement, a glimpse into the future. And all Joseph says is, please remember me when you are in the presence of Pharaoh, because I have shown you kindness. Tell Pharaoh of the injustice that I have experienced, so that he might show mercy to me. And what we have here is that the cupbearer, though, he did not remember Joseph for two years and the kindness that he did. Why? Well, Moses doesn't tell us the exact reason why he forgot him for two whole years. But it does give us a glimpse into what he's going to do with these trials in the future. What happened here is that Pharaoh had two separate dreams, basically saying the exact same thing. Neither Pharaoh nor his uh, these wise men could interpret these wild dreams. And I know that seems like a small point that these guys couldn't interpret these dreams because most of us can't always interpret our own dreams. But this is important because Pharaoh was considered to be almost like a god, really a god actually, to be worshipped. And he couldn't interpret his own dreams as a divine being, nor his wise men who had actually books to interpret dreams, could they interpret these two dreams. So this was a big deal, and this is why it says, and he awoke, because it's describing a man who's waking, who's probably sweating and is fearful. And he happened twice, two times, and both dreams were very similar. And so what we see is, is these people being stumped, and we see Joseph in prison. But what we get to see is that Joseph is finally going to be remembered, and we're going to see God at work in some amazing ways. And so we're going to see this in point two as we look at Genesis 41, verses 9 through 24. We're going to see Joseph remembered and God's sovereignty. Read with me in verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. 
Then Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in the chief baker and custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. And when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his own dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then the Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. When he had been shaved and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard that is said of you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile, seven cows plump and attractive. They came up out of the Nile, and they fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, very poor, ugly, thin, such as I had never seen in the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows, they ate and swallowed up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that the thin cows had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. And then I awoke. But I also saw in my dream seven ears of grain growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears also withered and thin, blighted by the east wind, which sprouted after them. And the thin ears, they swallowed up the seven good ears. I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. This is a scene in our passage, like many scenes that we've been witness to in, in TV shows or movies, where the lowly main character, right, is about to go from being a zero to a hero instantly, right? Ascending at the rising climax of the story. Much like one of my favorite characters, a guy named Smalls in the movie The Sandlot. Smalls was a short, scrawny kid with virtually no baseball skills who, who thought Babe Ruth was a girl calling her Baby Ruth and doesn't understand what he's holding when he has a signed ball by Babe Ruth and they go and play with it. And so we have this, this, this kid who... Who is um, he's new to town. He has a stepdad and a mom, and they're brand new. And he's just this kind of normal kid who wants to be accepted and loved, being a, a visitor, right? Really new to this town. And, and he has nowhere to go, except he sees this sandlot. He sees these kids, and these kids look pretty cool, pretty confident. They're gifted baseball players, and he wants to be a good baseball player. And, and after much ridicule, after much verbal abuse and mingling with these local kids for a while in the sandlot, Smalls finally gets a chance to prove himself and to show his worth and his value to them, that he can be one of them, kings of the baseball diamond. And so an opportunity arises, this lowly character, when he's playing in the outfield, and one of his friends hits a high fly ball to him. And what does he do? He closes his eyes, which he should not do, but he closes his eyes. He lifts up his hand, opens a glove, and lo and behold, he closes it and pulls it down, and he looks inside, and magically, he had caught this super high fly ball. And instantly, when he caught this amazing high fly ball, 
his status as a, this lowly character, this kid with no friends and no baseball skills, transforms into basically one of these kings of the baseball diamond. He's one of them. He's loved. He's accepted. He has shown them his worth and his value. Friends around him rallied to him. Squints, yeah, yeah, the great Hambino, Tommy and his twin brother, and Benny the Jet Rodriguez. They welcome him as one of their own. And I love this story. I love seeing this. And this is kind of what it, it seems like is going here in this passage. Joseph, a zero in prison, having an opportune moment to rise, the climax of the story, to a hero. And it seems like this is that defining moment for Joseph as it was for Smalls. Because Joseph was brought out of the prison and he's asked to earn his freedom, his acceptance, and his love by his performance by interpreting Pharaoh's dream. But instead of Joseph rising to be the hero, he humbly reminds us who the real hero is. He says, it's not in me. I can't do this. But God will give you a favorable answer. He's not picking himself up by his own bootstraps, but he's pointing to the God who knows he can give him an answer and respond to him. Joseph may not have known, right, the final outcome of this situation, but what he did is even though the trials he was going through, he trusted that God was good and that God was sovereign. And when he's face to face with the most powerful man in the nation who could throw him back in prison or kill him just by saying words, what did he do? He shot straight with Pharaoh. He didn't mince his words. And Joseph emphasized God and God's abilities, not his own. And Joseph knew that despite these, what would seem as random acts of violence and persecution that have happened to him, he knows that the Lord is at work in these trials and ways. And he knows that God, just like he helped him interpret the cupbearers and the baker's dreams, he could help him now interpret the Pharaoh's dreams. Because he knew simply this, that the trials of his life could be used as mercies in disguise. That that's possible because he has a God who's in control. But my question is for you all, especially as we face a new year. Many of us are tired. We've had holidays. You know, we've had time off and we're getting ready to either go back to work or we just started back to work. My question to you all as we face a new year in this, this uncertain time, do you get this, that God is good, that he's in control? Do you trust that in all of life and circumstances that come to you, whether good or bad, God knows what he's doing with your life, that he's sifting the circumstances, even though they be difficult or they be wonderful? Do you know that he is in control, that he can turn these agonies into glorious things, that he has that ability to turn tears of sorrow into tears of joy. But that is the God that we serve and that we have, who's a God who's always at work behind the scenes. One thing we say a lot in RUF is that God is at work. No matter what you or I do, God is always at work because he is. And that's what he is here now in the life of Joseph. And he is in ours as well, too. And I think we need to be challenged to think about these things because the reality is, is you and I, because I'm human too, you and I, we think this life's about us. It's about our children. It's about me, my wants and desires. It's not. 
It's not about you. It's about God and his glory. We are created in the Imago Dei, the image of God, to reflect back the glory that he is due. And when we do that, we experience joy in this life and peace and love. And that's what he calls us to. We are but pieces of his grand puzzle. And he's at work moving and putting the pieces in place. I know we don't always see the big picture, but he knows what it is. And that's what's going on here when he's telling this story of Joseph. And that's what Moses wants us to see. God's fingerprints are working through the story of Joseph in amazing ways. And he says, I want you to see this. I want you to see it. You may miss it in your own life, but I want you to see that this is the God who we have because he is at work. And so, even if you aren't ready to pray, Lord, show me your fingerprints in my life. If you're not ready to pray that because there's bitterness, anger, or difficulty with your relationship with the Lord because of trials and difficulties, you know what? That's okay. The Lord is patient and gracious. He knows what we're going through. But what I do I hope you do see is that God is moving in the life of Joseph. Even if you're not willing to ask to see the Lord's fingerprints in your own life and how he's working these things for good, I hope you're willing, though, to see him move in the life of Joseph. Because he is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And we get to see this glorious ending. And we see him moving as we close and see this final point. As Joseph is exalted and we see God's sovereignty. And we see this in verses 25 through 40. It says, Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh, they are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears of grain are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them, they are also seven years. And the seven empty ears of grain, which are blighted by the east wind, are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all of the land of Egypt. But after that time, there will arise seven years of famine, and all of the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the destruction of the famine that will follow, because it's going to be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that this thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and a wise man, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land, and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And then let them gather all of the food of these good years that are coming and to store them up under the grain of the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. The food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to simply occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. And this proposal, it pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown all of you this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are, Joseph. You shall be over my house, and all of my people shall order themselves as you command. 
Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you, Joseph. Talk about transformation, right? Huge transformation. He's going to be a, an enemy of the state, a prisoner, to now the, the second most powerful man in the nation. He's a convicted felon going to be vice president. Just like that. That is God at work, is it not? Because this is him moving in amazing ways, using these trials for God's greater glory. And I want you to see that him being forgotten by the cupbearer is him not being forgotten by God. But God is sifting these things. His enslavement being thrown into prison so that his trials could be used as mercies in disguise. This is God's sovereignty being put on display by Moses. This is a play-by-play -play action report of what is going on. God allowed Joseph to be put in prison, which he did. God allowed the cupbearer and the baker to also be put in prison. Then God orchestrated the fulfillment of the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. Then God allowed Joseph to be forgotten for a time by the cupbearer. Cup but God also orchestrated the timely reminder of Joseph's kindness to the cupbearer. God also gave Joseph the ability to accurately interpret Pharaoh's dream. And then God gave Joseph favor in the eyes of Pharaoh. And then God, what did he do? He exalted then Joseph to the right hand of Pharaoh. I think when we read scripture too quickly, we miss the grandeur and the beauty of what God is doing. He is freeing this prisoner and enemy of the state. And this godly man now has a power of influence to bless others, to bless a nation, to use these trials as mercies in disguise. And, and this is exactly a picture, a foreshadowing of what happens to Jesus, right? This is exactly what happens. Jesus was betrayed, right? Like Joseph was. Jesus was sold for silver, like Joseph was. Jesus was wrongfully thrown in prison like Joseph was. But also, Joseph, I should say, Jesus was loved by his father like Joseph was. Jesus also prophesied of his own exaltation much like Joseph did earlier in Genesis. And finally, Joseph was exalted to the right hand of power, which points to Jesus being placed and exalted at the right hand of the Most High, given all power, glory, and dominion. You see, Moses is showing us that Joseph is a type of Christ. He's a, a figure foreshadowing a greater reality to come. Because we see Joseph suffer and experience exaltation, but Jesus Christ is the one who experienced the fullest expression of suffering and exaltation. And so Joseph points us to the better representative of Jesus Christ who would take on all of our darkest, most vile and ugly sins to the cross and would suffer more than any of us could ever possibly know so that you and I could be free and so that you and I could also be exalted to the right hand of the throne like Jesus and like Joseph. And what does he call us to do? He says, store up the truths, right? Collect the scriptures, 
trials, famines, they are coming. Difficult times. You live in a broken world and a broken body with a broken heart. And guess what? Trials are going to come. Store up the truths. Collect the scriptures. Memorize them. Know them. So that when these times of trials come, you will be not tossed by the waves of the sea. But you will be able to stand firm knowing that God is at work behind the scenes for your benefit, for His glory, and your joy in Him. God is at work. And I know it's sometimes hard to see, especially when we're going through trials. I go through them too. But God is in control. And that is good. Amen? Amen. Because what if blessings come through drain drops? What if healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know that you are near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? Because church, it's true. What if the trials of your life, what if they are God's mercies in disguise? Let's go to the Lord and pray. Lord, this is not an easy message because, Lord, we don't like to talk about hard things in trials. But, Lord, you are at work. You are good. You are caring for us all the days of our lives. Lord, we simply ask that you would remind us time and time again that you are with us, that you are faithful. For we are feeble, we are forgetful, or people. Help us to collect the, the truths of the Scripture. Help us to store them up so that we have good things in our heart and our mind when we go through trials knowing that you are with us, working behind the scenes. Lord Jesus, we need you. As we look upon a new year, teach us. Help us to be more humble. Show us our need for you, but show us your beauty. Holy Spirit, show us that you are alive in us and that you are powerful. Make this Christian relationship, make this real in our lives. May we bring you honor and glory all the days of our lives. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Please stand.